You're listening to Discover Hope with Pastor Tom Leake of Hope Bible Church in Columbia, Maryland. Beloved, the best thing about the resurrection of Jesus is not that it was predicted and prophesied about a thousand years before it happened by David. The greatest thing about the resurrection is that it happened. It actually happened. It's a fact of history. There was a man who was raised from the dead in human history, and he's still alive. And there were eyewitnesses, and the evidence for it is unshakable. It has great meaning because it happened. In today's message, Pastor Tom is diving into the sermon Peter gave at Pentecost. In this sermon, Peter spoke about the resurrection of Jesus Christ that was foretold by the prophets hundreds of years before. But today, we are going to see that the most impactful, vital truth about the resurrection is not that it was featured in prophecy, but that it happened. Jesus was raised from the dead, and because of that, everything changed for you and me. Because he was raised, you too will be raised to new life. Now, here's Pastor Tom in the book of Psalms, chapter 6, as he continues his message, Logic on Fire, the church's first sermon. This holy one, this Hasid, will not decay. He will not be abandoned to that decomposition. So clearly, David was not writing about himself, and Peter understands that. He was looking through himself to the future and to the Messiah. Jesus' body, when placed in the ground, though he truly died, would not begin to decay. It would not suffer any decomposition at all. He was raised from the dead, if you think about it, very quickly on the what? On the third day. Why so quickly? Because of this prophecy that he, his body would not suffer any decay at all. Instead, as the psalm goes on, the path to life was made known to Christ. You have made known to me the path of life. And Jesus himself anticipated the fullness of joy, the fullness of gladness, which only comes in the glorious presence of his God. You know, we're allowed, according to uh, our documents here in this country, to pursue happiness all we want. But the truth is, the greatest happiness and joy is in the presence of God. Indeed, this indicates that the joys of heaven must be so extreme, we can't even begin to imagine them right now. In God's presence is not fullness of boredom. In God's presence is fullness of gladness and joy. Please remember that. Don't let Satan get into your head otherwise. Our resurrection from the dead, our resurrection from the dead will participate in what is happening to the Messiah where he's raised, has the path of life, and receives all the joy, the promises, because he was raised, we will be raised, we participate in all of this as well. Charles Spurgeon, in a devotion called Besides Still Waters, writes very beautifully about death's shallow victory even over us. I want to quote it to you, as only Spurgeon can write. In a while I shall slumber in the tomb, yet I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth, and after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. Job 19 25 and 26. My eyes, which soon will be glazed in death, will not always be closed in darkness. Death will be forced to give back its prey. I see death, and it has the bodies of the just locked in its dungeons. It has sealed their tombs and marked them for its own. Oh, death, foolish death, your caskets will be ceased and your storehouses broken open. The morning is come. Christ has descended. I hear the trumpets. Awake, awake. 
From the tomb, the righteous spring and death sits in confusion and howls in vain, for its empire is deprived of its subjects. Death will not keep one bone of the righteous, not a particle of their dust, not a hair of their heads. Christ has purchased every part of our bodies. The whole body will be complete and united forever in heaven with the glorified soul. Amen. That is our future, beloved, and don't you forget it. And he quotes this psalm, and Peter now comes to the focal point of his argument that he's making in the entire sermon in verses 29 to 32. He interprets the meaning of Psalm 16. And by the way, good preachers are always interpreting the meaning of the text, right? That's what Peter is doing. He's interpreting the meaning of Psalm 16. He's a good expositor here. At issue is the question, did David mean himself when he wrote that psalm? Did David speak of himself or did he speak of somebody else? Well, David is writing in the first person singular, but that's true of all the prophetic passages in the Old Testament. So was he writing of himself or was he writing of somebody else? Now, Peter, focus on verse 29. He makes the point, brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David. Remember, David lived a thousand years before uh, Peter. That he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Wow, a thousand years later, they could still visit the tomb of David. David's body did die. David's body was buried. David's body did see corruption. So much so that his tomb was well known, and they could visit his tomb any time a thousand years later. So David could not have been writing about himself. Peter rightly interprets the Old Testament text that the Holy One is not David, but the son of David, some son, some greater son who is coming in the future. Jesus of Nazareth is that son. Paul interpreted it the same way later in the book of Acts, chapter 13 and verse 36. Paul says, for David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep. That's a euphemism for dying as a believer. Fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. David decayed. David died. David did not get resurrected from the dead. As great as David was, David was not the Holy One, and David himself knew he was not the Holy One. The lesser David, that is, King David of the Old Testament, wrote of the greater David, the son of David, whom even Psalm 110 would pick up, and David would realize that son is so great, he calls his own son, do you remember? Lord. And Jesus used this in his debates with the teachers in the temple on the week that he was crucified. And he said, he asked those leaders, whose son is the Messiah? And they all said, David's son. And Jesus said, if he's David's son, why does he call him Lord? And the answer is because that son of David was more than another human being. That son of David was God in human flesh. Keep in mind, David was promised that his son would be the Messiah. Psalm 132, verse 11, for example, it says, The Lord has sworn to David a truth from which he will not turn back. Of the fruit of your body, I will set upon your throne. Someone would come from his loins eventually, and God would take him and set him on his throne. Also, 2 Samuel 7 and verse 16, your house, talking to David, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me, God is talking, forever. Your throne shall be established forever. 
David knew that. David knew that God had sworn to him with an oath. God made an oath. God swore to David with an oath. This is guaranteed. I mean, when God says something, it's true. When God swears it with an oath, I mean, where do you put that? That's going to happen. Yeah, I'm going to seat one of your descendants on your throne. Unfortunately, many Bible teachers interpret this throne of David as the throne that Jesus sits on right now at the right hand of the Father in heaven. That is not true. David never sat at the right hand of the Father. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 34, it makes it abundantly clear that David never ascended into heaven. The throne in heaven is God's throne. It's God's own throne. It's not David's throne. It's not even the Messiah's throne. Christ sits at the right hand of the throne of God. It's God's throne. Jesus is waiting at the right hand of the throne of God, as we're told in the Bible, for the time where the Father says to go and he will arise and he'll come back to earth. And then when he comes back to earth, after his second coming, he will sit on his own throne. Immediately upon declaring the right interpretation of Psalm 16, Peter now brings them right back to the present and he boldly declares, this Jesus God raised up again, a fact to which we, and he's talking about these uh, apostles that are there around him, we are witnesses. Think of the impact of those words on all of the Jews that were there. Here we are, 12 men, and we're standing here as witnesses. You only need two or three to establish a fact. We've got 12. All 12 of us over here, all 12 of us saw Jesus the Nazarene raised from the dead. And we are here to give our testimony, and you cannot dismiss our testimony. We were standing here boldly declaring to you what we saw take place just 50 days earlier from when they said this in the same location right there in Jerusalem. Beloved, the best thing about the resurrection of Jesus is not that it was predicted and prophesied about a thousand years before it happened by David. The greatest thing about the resurrection is that it happened. It actually happened. It's a fact of history. There was a man who was raised from the dead in human history, and he's still alive, and there were eyewitnesses, and the evidence for it is unshakable. It has great meaning because it happened. Indeed, it is the central event, not just in the Christian religion, but in all of human history. Jesus' resurrection provides man the only hope he can ever have. People hope in all kinds of things. You go from one country to another, one culture to another, one religion to another, and they have their hopes, but none of those are true hopes. This is the only true hope. And one of the greatest evidences for the truthfulness of the resurrection of Jesus and therefore the truthfulness for Christianity in contrast to all other religions and all other philosophies is that historically there was declared right in the middle of where Christ and his enemies were a man who was raised from the dead. And nobody could come up with another plausible theory. Nobody could come up with a body. Nobody could refute the testimony. If they had, Christianity would never have even gotten out of the parking lot. It never would have even gotten started. That is how convinced they were. This solid, this unified apostolic witness, we have it in the New Testament, and God wants you and I just as convinced of this fact as they were. The accuracy and the integrity of the New Testament gives us confidence in our witness and in our proclamation of Jesus Christ and him raised from the dead. All of this matters. In fact, in the end, I would say this, this resurrection of Jesus, in the end, this is all that matters. Everything that you're going to do this week and next month and all of this year, all of that eventually is going to perish. Your families are going to end. Your jobs are going to end. This government is going to end. The nation is going to end. It is what is connected to the resurrection of Jesus that God brings into the next age. Do you understand that? 
The only thing that really matters is how you are connected to that resurrection and faith and what God will do to raise you from the dead. Because people talk about, I'm going to die, but I'll live on through my children. No, you won't. I'm going to die, but I'm going to live on through my grandchildren. No, you won't. You'll be dead and you'll decay. But there is one hope. And that is that you will be raised from the dead and therefore everything that you do in this life for that king of kings matters. Everything matters because of the resurrection. If the resurrection had not happened, nothing we are doing, even coming here, would matter. In fact, Paul said, if Christ is not raised, your faith is in vain. This matters. The only thing that matters is the resurrection life, eternal life that Christ will give to us. And he did. Jesus gives his eternal life to anyone who asks him. You ask him today, he'll give you life. Isn't that what 1 John 4 says in verses 11 and 12? The testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. He who has the son has the life. He who does not have the son of God does not have the life. You want the life that leads to a resurrection life that goes on forever? You need the son of God in your life. You need to call on him. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That was the promise. We haven't even reached the climax, and I only have five minutes. So what am I to do? (laughs) Peter really has one more very important point, and I, I have to give it to you because Peter gave it to the Jews. It's his closing argument, you might say, that nails down the conviction. And that is fourth. We've gone from the life, the death, the resurrection, now to the ascension. In verses 33 through 36, look at verse 33. And he says, therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. In other words, he, Peter brings them right back to the strange phenomena that was occurring on the day of Pentecost by the Holy Spirit's coming. See, you did not get to see the Messiah raised from the dead as we did. But you have now experienced the coming of the Holy Spirit. You see and hear. The proof that Christ is the Messiah through these signs here in the streets of Jerusalem. You see, God took a beaten up, bloody, cold, lifeless corpse that was wrapped in spices and and cloth and it was buried in a, a dark tomb in an insignificant land, Israel. And he raised that Jew, that one person to the highest place in the universe. And that is all the proof that you need. And along with that, though, comes the signs of the Holy Spirit on this day of Pentecost. Peter, again, goes right back to the scriptures, and he proves the ascension of the Messiah by going to that psalm I just mentioned, Psalm 110. In that psalm, well, I'll read verse 34. It says, for it was not David who ascended into heaven, but David himself says, the Lord said to my Lord. In other words, the Lord God, the Father, said to my Lord, the Messiah, who is my son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Psalm 110 is recognized both by Christians and Jews, even the Jews of Jesus' day, as speaking of the coming Messiah. Yes, it was also written by David, but it's talking about David's son. There are two lords. The Lord, God the Father, said to my Lord, the Messianic King, sit at my right hand. Actually, if you go on in Psalm 110, it says, the Lord is at... Thy right hand, he will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. That's going to be the work of the Messiah. So being at the right hand of God establishes the Messiah in his power and his authority. And Jesus knew that going to the right hand 
of the Father established him with all authority in heaven and on earth. In fact, before it happened, when he was on trial and Caiaphas, the high priest, was questioning him, he made this so clear. Let me just quote to you Matthew 26. Caiaphas is frustrated. He's, he said to Jesus, I put you under oath. I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. I mean, this is the moment, right? People say Jesus never claimed to be the Son of God. Well, listen up. Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you hereafter, you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. What does that mean? Yes, I am the Son of God, also called the Son of Man. And because I'm sitting at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, I have the authority to ride the clouds back down to earth in power and claim my kingdom. Jesus predicted his own exaltation. He looked forward to his own exaltation. He knew he would be glorified. He knew the status he was going to have before men. And Peter is making sure everybody knows, everybody knows about this, where Jesus is and where he sits now. He's not on a cross crucified, by the way. That's misleading. He's not on a cross still dying somewhere and helpless. That's not where he is right now. He's not in a little trough in a cave in Bethlehem anymore. That's not where he is right now. Where is he right now? He's at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. He's highly exalted. Book of Ephesians chapter 1 makes a big deal out of this. It says Christ has been raised higher than all other authority. In fact, it says far above all other authorities. In other words, he got above the other authorities and he just kept going. Everyone else was way down below that. Angels and principalities and demons. Yes, even the archangel Michael. Yes, even the devil. Way down below the authority of Christ. That's why when he returns, he has a robe and on the robe and on his thigh, he has a name to make sure everybody understands king of kings. If you're a king, here comes your king, Lord of lords. If you think you're a Lord, here comes your master. People ask, is Jesus stronger than Satan? Well, here's your answer. There is no name higher. Muhammad's name is not higher. Muhammad's name is not anywhere near the name of Jesus. Mary's name is not anywhere near close to Jesus. Jesus' name is far greater than all of their names. There is no name higher. There is no name equal with Christ. Christ has total universal supremacy, and he shares that position of honor with nobody. And he sits there at the right hand of the Father until... That until anticipates the second coming. Until your enemies be made a footstool for your feet. What does that mean? That means that even though he has all authority and power now, he is not acknowledged as having all that authority and power now. The demons have figured it out. Dumb men have not figured it out. The demons know this is the son of God. Foolish men haven't figured this is the son of God. One day they will. Every knee eventually, either on purpose or being forced, will what? Philippians 2, acknowledge Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is sitting at the right hand of God until, not forever, until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet, put underneath him, put underneath him in subjection so they finally acknowledge him, acknowledge his authority, acknowledge he was the only way to the Father, acknowledge he was the way, the truth, and the life, acknowledge his soul supremacy. That's Christ. Even in Matthew 25, Jesus made that so clear. 
in the Olivet Discourse, when he predicted his second coming, he said, this sitting on my throne will come after my second coming. That's why we're premillennial. The kingdom is coming after the second coming. He said, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, that's who he's talking about himself. When he comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. You couldn't have a more clear chronological statement. It is only when he has come a second time, then will he sit on his glorious throne. That's the throne of the Messiah. And it says all the nations will be gathered before him. That is in Jerusalem. That is on earth. And beloved, with the thought of Jesus, the Nazarene's highest exaltation in the minds of these Jews and the truth of the prophecies that Peter quoted still ringing in the ears of them when they trusted in those scriptures, with the manifestations of the Spirit undeniably displayed there in Jerusalem and with the boldness and confidence of this fishermen from Galilee and all the other men standing behind them, these 12 apostles, really with the other believers, the 120 believers that are there. It's like, it's like Peter took a gavel and he just whacked it down and he said, that's the final verdict. And here it is. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. I cannot imagine standing there with those men when that was said. You put a nail in the coffin of the Messiah. I just put a nail in the coffin of your condemnation. They stood condemned for killing the Holy One of Israel. You better believe the power of God attended Peter's words that day. If we cheat a little bit and look into verse 37, which I I actually is not cheating. I hope you'll do that. It says, when they heard this, they were... Now, I read in Athens recently, I was given a devotion to the, to the, um, Hope Academy kids, and notice when Paul finished preaching about the resurrection of Jesus in Acts 17 to the philosophers on Mars Hill, most of them just jeered and sneered and mocked. But that's not what happened here. They were pierced to the heart. They were cut in the deepest part of their being and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, what are we going to do now? If we've killed the Messiah, what's there for us to do now? Is there any hope for us? Is there any response we can have? And Peter has the solution. It is true. This was a horrific thing. You killed your Messiah. But there's still hope. We're going to get to that next time. But I want everyone to know that what he says is you have to repent. You have to completely change your mind. Whatever you've been believing, you've got to stop believing that. And now you, th- these are the things you have to believe. Whatever direction you were going in life because your mind changes, the course of your life needs to change. That's repentance. It's like a U-turn. If you're there, you thought you were a Christian, but you really haven't acknowledged Christ as the Lord of your life. You're not saved. You're not a Christian. Here's how you become a Christian. Repent. Give your life to Christ. Change your mind. Change the way you're thinking. Come back to Christ. Come back to him, acknowledge him as your Lord and as your authority, and he will save you, and you will be a child of his. And all of the sins that you've committed, maybe you might not think they're as bad as this, but any sin throws us away from the presence of God. God will forgive you for that sin. It doesn't matter what it's been. It doesn't matter if you've had an abortion and you feel you feel sick about that. It doesn't matter if you've committed some terrible sexual acts. It doesn't matter if you've had hatred in your heart towards people. It doesn't matter if you've treated people in your family poorly. Those things are bad. Those things are terrible. You should be pierced to the heart for those things. 
Whatever you've done, you should be pierced to the heart for that. Even if you think you're a good person, if you really saw yourself the way God sees you, you'd be pierced to the heart with the sins you've committed against him. You're not a good person. But you don't have to stay there. If it cuts, if it hurts, that's good. But here's the joy. Repent, and God will give you life. He'll give you life forever and ever and ever. And that is the good news of Christianity. Father, send us forth from this place with joy in our hearts and help anyone who has not yet repented to do so this very day. Thank you for this time of worship of your son and for being able to see him high and lofty and exalted. Help our faith to soar along with that vision we have from your servant Peter. And thank you for this text. In Jesus' name we pray. Because Jesus is raised, you will be raised. Ultimately, death is the loser. All its captives will one day be freed. In today's message, Pastor Tom showed us that the only things that matter are the ones that are connected to the resurrection of Christ. Everything else ends. But what you do in this life matters because you are in Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything, even death. Discover Hope is a listener-supported ministry, and we'd like to offer you the opportunity to be a part of sharing the gospel message. Would you join us in praying for our listeners? Pray that the love and grace of Jesus will be evident in each new broadcast and that many would come to know the hope of salvation. Thanks for praying. If you feel led to contribute financially to this ministry as well, you can do so by visiting hopebible.org and clicking the giving tab at the top of the page. We appreciate every amount given and use it to continue producing the messages of Pastor Tom leak that you hear on Discover Hope. There is joy in heaven when someone converts to Christianity, but do you know what it takes to bring a person to the point of surrendering their life to Christ? When we return next time, Pastor Tom is going to break down the elements of a true conversion, beginning with the preaching of the gospel. Continuing through the account of Pentecost, we see that 3,000 Jews who cried for Jesus' death were converted. Thanks for tuning in today for Discover Hope. If you'd like to hear more teachings from Pastor Tom, visit HopeBibleChurch.org. There's much more to learn from the book of Acts, so we hope you'll join us again right here on Discover Hope.